Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard, and I own a house. Or do I? Property law is complicated, and one of the things that blew my mind when I took Law 201701 was that none of us really own property in Canada. What? The Dean of Queen's Law, Bill Flanagan, is also the instructor for the property law module of Law 201701, Introduction to Canadian Law. He sat down with me to help me understand what ownership of property means in the Canadian context, and later, how finders keepers is a more legally accurate expression than you might think. This podcast is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. Let's talk property with Dean Bill Flanagan. I bought a house in 2015, and at the time, I hadn't taken Law 201. I hadn't taken the property module. I just kind of had this weird cultural understanding that I was just kind of getting land and a building and a bunch of stuff, but I'd never really thought about what am I getting when I buy a house? How does it, and this is one of the things you talk about in the property law module. What are you getting when you buy a house? How does it all sort of break down? Yes, well, when you buy a house, you're purchasing something called a fee simple estate which is a bit of a complex thing to explain, but this is the largest interest in land known in common law property. And what that means is that your interest in the land will last not only for your lifetime, but for as long as you have heirs to the property. In the event you don't have an heir, and you haven't left an heir in your will, then the land will return to the crown, that is, a sheet back to the crown. And the core theory is, is that all of the land of Canada Indeed, all of the land of Britain, going way back in time in the history of the common law, is land that is held of the crown. So the idea is that the crown actually owns all of the land of Canada. And just you have an estate in that land, that is, you're able to hold that land for a period of time by virtue of the crown's benevolence, is how it went in the old days. And so today, this has evolved and I mean, in the, again, back in history, you would only hold the land so long, so long as you rendered services to the crown. And the services have now since, long since obsolete, such as to look after the king's hounds and render soldiers to the king. All of this is long obsolete. But the remaining theme is that the land is still held of the crown, and in the event you die without heirs, it will escheat or return to the crown. So at the end of the day, every, all land in Canada belongs to the crown. That's the theory, and it goes way back in time to when William the Conqueror arrived in England from France and conquered all of the lands of England, and he seized all of those lands in his own name as the king, as the crown, and then he parceled that land out to his loyal followers, his lords and vassals, and he said, you would hold this land only so long as you render loyal service to me. So the idea was that the crown held all of the lands of England, and this remains right from 1066. This remained a theory that was embedded in the common law at that time and indeed continues to this day. So this carried over from England to the New World and then when Canada was settled, obviously it was under the crown. So all the same principles apply. That's right. When uh, the British crown settled Canada, it incorporated British law into Canada and this included all of the old common law. Now, interestingly, when the British, of course, settled Canada, there were Aboriginal peoples here who were 
here long before the British crown ever set foot on North, the, the lands of North America. So this raised an interesting question for the crown, that is how to recognize the pre-existing possessory claims of the First Nations in Canada. And interestingly, the crown, because at the time it was very important for the crown to develop good relations with First Nations, they were in battle with the French crown and later the Americans. The First Nations were very important allies of the British crown. And in order to secure that relationship and to recognize the pre-existing claims of the First Nations. So with the Royal Proclamation in 1763, the British Crown recognized that the lands of British North America had been occupied for a millennium by the First Nations and recognized these pre-existing claims and, and committed to preserve these pre-existing claims and that none of these claims could be affected or altered without the consent of the First Nations. And so, although it is correct to say under Canadian law that all of the lands are held of the Crown, it's very important to recognize that the Crown rate at the beginning of the settlement of Canada recognized the pre-existing First Nations and recognized that their entitlement to the land could not be altered without their consent. Right. Uh, so back to the issue of, of me buying a house and buying my property. The other thing I, I didn't understand at the time is, well, first, I didn't understand that all property ultimately belongs to the crown and that in the event of me not having an heir, for instance, escheat um, is the word? Escheat, yes. Escheat, and then it escheats back to the crown. Uh, the other thing I didn't really understand is the distinction between the land and all of the stuff that's sitting on the land when I buy the property and whether or not that stuff is kind of considered by a reasonable person to be something you can remove. So do, can we unpack that a bit in terms of the distinction between land and, and the assets that come with the land? Property law, there's a fundamental distinction between real property and personal property. Real property is land. Personal property is items of property that are movable or intangible, things that you can't touch, such as a patent or a contractual right or a share in a corporation. Other types of personal property would, would include things that you can touch but are movable, like your watch or your car or your clothes. Real property is different in that it is land. You can touch it, but you can't move it. That is, it is an immovable asset. And so this is a fundamental distinction in how we describe property rights in Canadian law. So, I mean, and the, the real property, the land, now there's a house on that land. It's kind of part of the real property at that point because it can't be moved. I can't pick the house up and take it somewhere. So is it sort of bonded to the property itself? That's correct. Anything that is in or attached to the land forms part of the real estate of the of the property. So when you purchase land and it is a house or a building on that land, you're purchasing not only the land, but anything that is in or attached to the land forms a part of the real property. The, the other thing I found really interesting taking the course was the whole principle of, well, when I was a kid, finders, finders, keepers, losers, weepers is what you say on the playground. And this is actually something that kind of bears itself out legally when it comes to property. Yes, I, I sometimes say to my students that the study of law is a bit of an unpacking of what you've learned in the playground. And as you say, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, this is a, in some respects a core principle of common law property. Likewise, if you're in the playground and you say, but you promised, that's really the, the root of contract law. 
So it's a funny kind of way I always joke with my students that the study of law is really just further developing what you've already picked up in the playground. But with finders keepers, and this goes back to Aboriginal title, that is the law has long attached significance to just simply the possession of property. That is, merely being in possession of property will give you some kind of rights to that property, some kind of legal entitlement to that property. So, for example, with the First Nations, they were, of course, in possession of the lands before the arrival of the British Crown. It was entirely consistent with common law property that the British Crown would recognize these prior possessory rights, giving rise to a legal claim. It's a bit like finders keepers. That is, if you're in the playground and you find a lost object, you're the first one to find that lost object. The law is clear that you have a superior claim to any of your other schoolmates, except one who may be the true owner of the lost property. That is, you may have found the lost property, but that doesn't mean that the bigger kid can hit you over the head and take that from you and suffer no legal consequence. The bigger kid might say, but it's not yours. I can take that away from you. Well, again, the common law property has always been clear. Even though it isn't yours, it's simply found property. You may have done very little to earn it. You may have just fallen on your lap or... You rolled over in the playground and discovered the watch or the ring that's very valuable. But the common law has always been very clear that merely because you were in first possession of the property, you're entitled to that property and your claim is superior to all but the true owner. The advantage of this, of course, is that it avoids a free-for-all in the playground. What you don't want is the biggest kid simply hitting everybody over the head and taking the lost property. This would lead to mayhem and chaos and would not be a desirable outcome and would encourage all kinds of aggressive, unsocial behavior. And so, again, this is a principle that you can trace throughout property law, and it's one that we examine in a little bit of detail in the common law, in the the property section of of our introduction to Canadian law. And indeed, we trace this finder's keeper's law all the way from finding something in the playground to the recognition of Aboriginal title in Canadian law. But thank you very much, Bill. Well, thank you. Thanks to Bill Flanagan, Dean of the Faculty of Law at Queen's University. If you're interested in property law, you'll get an overview in the Property Law Module of Law 201-701, Introduction to Canadian Law, at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening.